Simon Peter answered him and said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered and said unto him, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father, which is in heaven. I say also unto thee that thou art Peter, and upon this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it, and I will give unto thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven. Whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then charged he his disciples that they should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ. From that time forth, Jesus began to show unto his disciples how that he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. Then Peter took Jesus and began to rebuke him. And he said to the Lord, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, You get behind me, Satan, for you savor not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. Welcome to the Unchanging Word Radio Bible Study. Our teacher is Dr. John G. Mitchell, and our conviction is that the Word of God has never changed and never will. The truth in God's Word was, is, and always will be true. God never changes. Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. In our passage in this study, we hear Dr. Mitchell saying that for the first time, Jesus announces His program. For the first time in the book of Matthew, He presents Jesus declaring that he must go to Jerusalem, be killed, and be raised again on the third day. And as we read, we find that with this announcement, Jesus met opposition from one of his closest disciples. But Jesus saw behind this opposition and rebukes its true origin. Now, do you face opposition in presenting the gospel or sharing your testimony with others about your faith in Christ? If they won't listen to you at this time, why not ask them to listen to The Unchanging Word here on this station? They can also visit our website, unchangingword.life, at any time. Well, here's Dr. Mitchell with our lesson in Matthew chapter 16, verse 21. Thank you. And again, we come to you with studies in the book of Matthew. And we have come to a very, very important portion of Scripture. I want this to be very clear in your mind that here we have a turning point in the ministry of our Lord. You will notice that from chapter 16 on, the Lord, for the most part, is giving most of his time now to his disciples. He has been dealing with the multitudes. He has performed his miracles. He has presented his credentials. The nation has rejected him. First of all, there's leaders, then the people themselves. And now we come to the place where he begins to instruct his own. But the very first thing is the revelation of his person that he was the Christ, the Son of the living God. And this is followed by the revelation of his purpose. In verse 18 to 20, 
He's going to build a church. And this church is upon a, a real solid foundation, Christ Jesus. The risen, glorified Christ is the foundation for the church. As Revelation 1 says, he carries on his girdle the keys, the, the authority of death and of hell. And in Corinthians chapter 10, the fourth verse, that rock which followed them was Christ. And the other foundation can no man lay than that which is laid, which is Christ Jesus. And both Peter and Paul speak of our Lord being the chief cornerstone, and that we are living stones knitted together and made up a spiritual house to the Lord. Now the question is raised, how can he carry out that purpose? And in verse 21, we have the revelation of his program. Now let me get it again to you, the revelation of his person in verses 13 to 17. And then the revelation of his purpose, verses 18 to 20. He's going to build a church. And now the, how can he carry out that purpose? So there is given to us the revelation of his program. May I read that verse? From that time forth, mark the statement, from that time forth, Jesus began to show unto his disciples how that he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. Now here is the first announcement, I say, of his death in the New Testament. It's a turning point in our Lord's ministry. And you'll notice that the death and resurrection are always coupled together. I would like to press that. The death of Christ means nothing apart from the resurrection. Now, this is his program. I said a while ago, how is God going to get a people who are fitted to stand in his presence, fitted to be knitted together, to be in a habitation of God through the Spirit, through eternity? How can God take men and women who are born in sin, shaped in iniquity, who have been rebellious and lawless and sinful, transform them into eternal beings, fitted to be joined to his eternal, sinless, righteous son. How's he going to do that? Now, men have tried down through the centuries to do something about it. I've always failed. You remember Job raised the question in Job 14.4 when he said, What you fellows may say to me is all right, but how can a man be just with God? That's why he cried out in the same chapter, Oh, that I had a dazed man, somebody who could put his hand on God and put his hand on me. You see, in the 49th Psalm, David could say how men, they call things after their own names. They think they're going to live forever. For man, can by, man cannot by any means redeem his brother, nor give to God a ransom for him. For he knows that his soul is precious and it lives forever, but how can he be redeemed, set free, loosed? from his sin. So how can God build a church? Where is he going to find the stones that are eternal, that are perfect, that are complete, that will make up a temple in which God can dwell through eternity? Now Peter says in 1 Peter chapter 2 that we are living stones and Christ is the chief cornerstone. Paul speaks of it in Ephesians chapter 2. But how is he going to do it? So we find here in verse 21, the Lord for the first time announcing his program, how he's going to carry out that purpose. What does he say? 
from that time forth began Jesus to show unto his disciples how that he must go to Jerusalem. He must suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and be raised again the third day. I, I want to say again, my friend, there is no revelation of his person, of his purpose, or of his program until he's absolutely rejected by the nation Israel. I want you to see this in the book of Matthew. How is he going to take sinners and cleanse them? He must die. He must be buried. He must be raised again from the dead. That's why when you come to the book of Acts, the early church, whether it be Peter's ministry or Paul's ministry, all the apostles, the great theme was the resurrection of our Savior from the dead. And of course, there's no resurrection without death. And I repeat what I said a while ago, the death of Christ is a tragedy if there is no resurrection. But oh, how wonderful to know that we have a living Savior who said to us, because I live, you shall live also. And instead of the cross, pardon me, instead of the crown, he's going to have a cross. Instead of reigning, he's going to die. Instead of being sovereign over Israel, they're going to kill him. You see, there's an absolute change in the program of our Savior. Now, this was foretold in the 22nd Psalm, 69th Psalm, Isaiah 50, 52, and 53. The prophets prophesied, as Peter 1.11 declares, how that uh, they spoke of the, of the death, of Christ and the glory that should follow, the sufferings of Christ and of the glory that should follow. They could never understand this question of suffering. This was the great stumbling block to the nation Israel, that the Messiah must first die. Reign, yes. Glorified, yes. But not die. But how are sins going to be put away? Because, as Hebrews 9.22 says, without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sin. And the Jews should have known this from the time of Abraham, in fact, right from Abel, right on down through the centuries. By type and by shadow, God had taught them that without the shedding of blood, there was no remission of sin. And you and I having sinned, how are we going to stand in the presence of God? Someone must take away our sin by sacrifice. That's why in Hebrews 10, 12, we read, This man, this man, Jesus, by one sacrifice for sins forever. Or as Hebrews 1, 3 says, when he had by himself purged our sins. You ever notice all the apostles spoke of it? Paul, the apostle, declared he was made sin for us who knew no sin that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. He gave himself for our sins that he might deliver us from this present evil world. The apostle Peter writes when he says, uh, he that just died for the unjust that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh and quickened by the Spirit. The Apostle Paul, the Apostle John said, you know that he was manifested to take away our sin, and in him is no sin. And the writer of Hebrews says that by one offering he hath perfected forever those whom he has set apart. But this man, by one sacrifice for sins forever, uh, by the which will we are sanctified through the offering of the body of Jesus Christ once for all. 
Without the shedding of blood, there is no remission of sins. And Hebrews is full of it. But it's all a mistake if, if Christ be not raised from the dead. And as Corinthians chapter 15 says, if Christ be not raised from the dead, we are yet in our sins. We are of all men most miserable. In other words, the resurrection of Jesus Christ is the, is the guarantee from God that he's already put away our sins and fitted us for the presence of God. And when you and I say that I belong to the church or we belong to the church of Christ, it must mean, first of all, that you believe your sins have been put away forever. You must believe that you'll never again see your sins again. You must believe that you have eternal life, that you're joined eternally to the Son of God. That's what it means, my friend, to belong to the church of Jesus Christ. It means your eternal being, able to stand in the presence of God in all the righteousness of Christ, you're a member of his body. Just as eternal, I say this reverently, just as eternal as the Son of God himself. This is a wonderful truth. It's a wonderful fact. Now, the very first time that Jesus announces his death, his program, that he's going to make provision to transform sinners into saints, to transform children of wrath into children of God, immediately he has satanic opposition. And notice how Satan opposes the purpose and program of God. I read verses 22 and 23. Then Peter took Jesus and began to rebuke him. Now listen to this. And he said to the Lord, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. But Jesus turned and said to Peter, You get behind me, Satan, for you savor not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. Isn't that an amazing statement? Now that Peter had said, in verses 13 through 17, Peter had said, Thou art the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus now says, I'm going to suffer. I'm going to die. I'm going to be raised again from the dead. And Peter said, Wait a minute. Wait a minute, Lord. You're not going to do that. Why, I have just declared you to the Christ, the Son of God. And if you're the Christ, the Son of the living God, how can you die? How can you suffer? You see, Peter, in his ignorance, was opposing the purpose and program of God for his son. But notice the answer of Jesus when he said, Get thee behind me, Satan, for you savor not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. Our Lord saw behind Peter the opposition by Satan. And may I say, my Christian friend, and those of you who are not Christians who are listening in today, the devil or Satan and all his forces of darkness have not ceased trying to stamp out the revelation of the purpose and program of God for this age. Wherever the gospel of Jesus Christ has gone, and you have immediate opposition. Do you remember one time the Lord Jesus went into the synagogue? I'm quoting from Luke's Gospel, chapter 4. And the moment he went into the synagogue, he was opposed by a demon-possessed man. How long this man had gone to the synagogue, I don't know. 
But the moment Jesus came in, he opposed Jesus. And wherever you go, my friend, and begin to talk about the Son of God and his wonderful work at the cross and, and in resurrection, guaranteeing that work at the cross for sinners, you're going to have opposition. And sometimes Satan opposes the purpose of God through somebody who's very close to you. You'll notice that, that Satan used Peter. He didn't use Judas. He used Peter, one of the closest ones to our Savior. And sometimes, and I say this very kindly, and yet I say it very kindly, oftentimes the purpose of God in an individual believer is sometimes opposed by those who are very, very close to the believer. I can think of parents, for example, who oppose the purpose of God for their young people who have, who have given themselves over to the Lord for possibly the mission field or, or the ministry of the Word of God. You see, why there are a lot of pagans at home and you can do more in business than you can do preaching from a pulpit and all the arguments and all the rationalization of anything opposed to the purpose of God. My friend, I, I, I've been in the ministry long enough to know, as one of the apostles said, we're not ignorant of Satan's devices. He might take the ones closest to you to oppose the purpose of God in you. You see, it calls for us Christians to walk very close to the Lord. And for those of you who may not be Christians, why aren't you a Christian? Why haven't you accepted the Savior? The possibility is somebody very close to you is being used by satanic forces to keep you from accepting the Savior. If there's anything or anyone that Satan all hell hates is the Lord Jesus Christ. They hate the Word of God. They hate the people of God. It's an amazing thing, this, you know. The moment you begin to witness for the Savior, even some of those who've been friends for years turn on you. They just simply turn on you. Sometimes your own family turns on you. And sometimes they mean well. Now, Peter meant well when he said, Lord, get this idea out of your head about you suffering and dying and being raised again from the dead. Why? Why, you're the Christ, the Son of God. And Peter could have rationalized all this. But Jesus saw the fact that the very first time he announces on earth the fact that he's going to suffer and die and be buried and be raised again from the dead for the outworking of the purpose of God of gathering out a people for his name, you've got satanic opposition. Now, I repeat this. You might as well face it, my friend. And I say something to you young Christians or to you who are just beginning to get a glimpse of the real truth in Christ. Don't be surprised when you stand for the word of God and for the person of our Savior and for the church of Christ made up of all real believers. Don't be surprised if you have some opposition from some of your religious friends maybe from your own family, from those among whom you work, from the world outside. Remember, the world is an enemy of God. And the moment you and I, who are living in an enemy world, begin to stand for the person and work of our Savior, you're bound to have opposition. And I say again, oftentimes it comes from the most unexpected quarters, from people you never dreamed would oppose you. I know whereof I speak, having taught the Word of God here in the city of Portland for these many, many years. 
some of the greatest opposition I've ever had in Portland was not from the world, but from religious leaders, from people who believed or claimed to believe that they were Christians, that they believed the Bible. But because it didn't, didn't go along with their organization or what they believed, they opposed it. Don't be surprised at this. And may I say, the closer you walk to the Savior, the possibility of more and more opposition. But isn't it wonderful to stand with the Savior? Huh? Did you hear me? It's wonderful to stand for the Savior and to live for him and bear testimony for him in spite of opposition. And please don't be too hard on your friends. They're just being used as tools by satanic forces to thwart the purpose of God in you. And if Satan sought to thwart the purpose in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, don't be surprised if he tries to thwart the purpose of God in you and in me. So it behooves us to walk with the Lord. And remember, as we walk with him, he will work out in us his purpose and his program. Isn't it wonderful to know that in spite of all the opposition, God will still work out his purpose and his program. Now may you walk with him today, enjoy him, because he's the one who not only has put away your sin, but he's defeated all the forces of the enemy. And you can rejoice in a life, in a walk, in a relationship, in an intimacy with God himself, because Christ worked out the program. He did die, he did suffer, he did put away your sin, and now he's alive forevermore. And he's saying to you, come unto me, and I'll give you rest. May you enjoy that today for his name's sake.
Thank you for listening to the Unchanging Word Radio Bible Study today. Our teacher has been Dr. John G. Mitchell. We trust that your hearts have been blessed and encouraged through the study of God's Word. You may write to us with your comments and your prayer requests to the Unchanging Word, P.O. Box 398, Dallas, Oregon, 97338. That's the Unchanging Word, P.O. Box 398, Dallas, Oregon, 97338. The Unchanging Word. And so until next time, this is the Unchanging Word radio broadcast.